Hello, and welcome to Voices from the Sky, a companion podcast to Sky Island Journal, an independent international literary journal where we discover and publish the finest poetry, flash fiction, and creative nonfiction from around the world. Always free to access, we publish accomplished authors side by side with emerging voices. For over 115,000 readers in 145 different countries. My name is Jeff Sommerfeld, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Sky Island Journal, and I'm so thankful that you decided to join us here at Voices from the Sky, a Sky Island podcast production where we delve deep into some of our favorite pieces since our journal's inception in 2017, and we go inside the minds and hearts of their creators as they help us explore their literary works more fully. We're now in part four of this six-part series that comprises season two of Voices from the Sky, where we're featuring the poems, flash fiction narratives, and creative nonfiction pieces that continue to inspire and challenge us both emotionally and intellectually since first publishing them in Sky Island Journal. I recently had the honor of speaking with their original creators to gain more insights into their writing journeys and the featured pieces themselves. So far in this season, we've been bouncing back and forth between the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. We started in Nova Scotia, Canada with Linda Hagland and her creative nonfiction piece, Dark. And then we just took a little scoot down to Boston, Massachusetts, where we met with Atib Ghoul and his poem, Portable Cactus. Of course, Atib had made a much larger journey from Pakistan to Boston. But then here in this season, we made the trip over to California to meet with Vivian Tran to talk about her poem, Ash. And now in this fourth installment of the season, we head back all the way across the United States to Maine. It's here that we meet with Jessica Shively, who's one of the most talented writers that I've had the pleasure of speaking to. And since the fall of 2021, when we published her flash fiction piece, Bicycle, in issue 18 of Sky Island Journal, we've seen how she continues to grow as a writer. This is now the second time this season that we're proudly able to say that this piece that we published was the very first literary publication for our writer. I'm so thankful that Jessica found us and so grateful that she took the time to meet with me earlier this year to talk about this tremendous piece. Of course, with it being the month of October, I think it's going to be a perfect fit, and you'll know exactly why very soon. In our show notes, you can click on this piece, read it quietly to yourself, or if you'd like to follow along while Jessica does a reading of it in just a few moments, you can certainly do that as well. I recognize that when you're listening to this podcast, you might be riding your bike or folding your laundry or maybe just taking a walk, and you might not be able to click on that link right away. And so in this episode, Jessica will read the piece in its entirety exactly the way that she intended it. And as listeners, you can experience all the twists and turns of the story itself, be introduced to the characters, and then in our next episode, we'll go in-depth with the creation of this piece, its development, and so much more. Thank you again for joining us here at Voices from the Sky. Be sure to check out all of our previous episodes, and if you like what you've heard, go ahead and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get great podcasts. But for now, please settle in and enjoy Bicycle by Jessica J.L. Shively. Bicycle. Twilight was getting along when Henry found the arm. He wrecked his bike, running over it, riding fast down Franklin Street. 
He'd ridden that way home for the last six weeks since moving to the Cape and had never seen anything before. He picked himself up, jostled and annoyed, knees bruised and knowing he was going to hear it from his mom if she found out his helmet hadn't been buckled and had gone skidding down the road nearly to Hughes. He brushed loose gravel from his skinned hands, turning back to see what had caused him to nearly do a header into the street. It could have been a branch, except Henry had never known nature to make anything quite so delicate for a tree, and he'd never known a tree to have long, thin fingers with nails painted a soft pink. It wasn't the ghastly sight he'd seen in horror movies he wasn't supposed to watch, nor was it the hokey kind of prop you'd see at cheap hayrides in October. It was an arm, a woman's arm. It was neither severed nor torn from a body, but it was there, just the same, real. He did the only thing he could think to do. He picked it up and put it in his bike basket. At the freshly minted age of 11, Henry was in that awkward stage where it was terribly hard to make friends and was still debating if girls actually had cooties or not. At home, his father would be cooking dinner, not quite wondering after him yet, and his mother wouldn't be home from her big-time job running one of the fancy hotels. Speeding down Washington, he knew he'd have just enough time to sash the arm. He'd put it out in the garage, which was really an old carriage house, that his parents had given him to use as a workshop. Unlatching the door, he wheeled the bike in, arm and all. He placed the arm on a workbench, took one long look at it in the desperate glow from the porch light, then threw an old sheet over it. He thought, as he walked to the house, that this would be a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. He found the foot on Almira near the bridge. He marveled over the sight, then popped it into his basket to wheel home and place next to the arm. He combed over them both with a magnifying glass. Other than the fact that it was a little bony and the fingers a bit long, there was nothing odd about the arm. The foot was a different shade of fleshy white, and the toes were stubby and painted a neon shade of green. He liked them and their uniqueness and wondered at the spectacle of it all before throwing the sheet over them both and heading in for dinner. The finding of body parts became a bit of a daily adventure. He found pieces of women along the beach by the convention hall, not far from the lighthouse, and in the bushes of corner houses or beside the unused walkways between tightly built Victorians. He had nearly half a woman now. It was when he found a torso, brilliant bronze skin fitted into one of those frilly lightweight blouses, that it occurred to him to put the pieces together. He went to Swain's with his allowance money to pick up the tools he'd need. Perhaps, he thought, he could make a friend. He spent stolen minutes before dinner knitting pieces together. Because of their surreal quality, they did not decompose nor change at all from the day he found them. Not once did he consider where they were coming from or why, until his mother said something standing in front of the mirror, smoothing down the dress she was wearing to an event one evening. You look stunning, his father said to her, as he helped with the zipper. God, she said, turning, I just can't stand my arms. Henry realized then that sometimes people didn't like themselves. 
He hadn't thought much about his own body ever changing, but he'd leafed through some of the ladies' magazines his mother left in the bathroom. He'd seen ads for things like tone your thighs in 20 days or get the lips he's been longing for. He thought it was something women liked to do, like dressing up for Halloween. He never drawn the conclusion that some women were constantly wishing away parts of themselves they could never really change. Parts he'd found. A nose. A hand. An ankle. The creation wasn't perfect. It was different sizes, shapes, and colors. But he liked it just the same. All he needed now was a head. He cruised around, thinking of where he hadn't looked biting his lip and wondering if the final piece would make his creation become alive. His father knew something was up. Even though Henry had told him it was a secret, he wasn't sure how long he could keep him away. Even covered by a sheet, the creation had the distinct shape of a corpse. Henry found the head in a flower garden on Jackson. He bundled it into a burlap sack and pedaled fast thinking he could get it in place before dinner. He worked with delicate movements, losing track of the time, when he heard the back door open and the footsteps of his father walking off the porch and toward the workshop. Henry, his father called. Just a minute, Henry called back, threading the last stitch and tying it off. It's fast time for dinner. I know, just a second. His father was outside the workshop, an arm's length from opening the door. Henry didn't know if he should throw the sheet over the creation or if he should rush to the door, hold it shut. Before he could decide, he heard the door creak and the creation's eyes likewise opened. <laughs>